afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming here to the Cato Institute. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of our project on emerging technologies. It's my pleasure to have uh, Chris Coyne and Abby Hall here to discuss their book, Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. Uh, I suppose uh, to, to kick off, I, I'd want to remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones uh, and put them on silent at the very least. Uh, there will be a Q&A session towards the end of uh, our discussion here, so uh, I'm sure you'll spend a lot of time thinking about what you want to ask. Uh, but before kicking off, I thought it would be good to ask our speakers to just briefly introduce themselves. Yeah. Uh, my name is Abby Hall. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Tampa. I received my PhD from George Mason in 2015. Uh, my research is largely on issues related to uh, U.S. foreign policy and defense, broadly speaking. So. Uh, writing on things like drones, uh, police militarization, themes in the book, uh, as well as uh, other issues, so things like weapons as foreign aid and far-right extremism. My name is Chris Coyne. I'm an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and the associate director uh, of the F.A. Hayek program for the advanced study of philosophy, politics, and economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, and my, my research interests are similar to Abby's. Well, I think men, most of the audience will be familiar with the topic of police militarization thanks to uh, the response to uh, protests in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which I think brought uh, police militarization to national and international news. Uh, but as we've just said, you're, you're both economists. Why, uh, why, why would economists be interested in this? We've had a lot of commentary from lawyers, people who work in criminal justice. What's, what are economists doing looking at this issue? Sure. Uh, well, what, what, are, what are economists doing not looking at the issue? That's the, that's the important question here. Uh, uh, you know, economics is a study of, of the so, is a social science. And so it's a set of tools that allows us to understand the social world. And of course, a key part of that is politics and is all its various forms and manifestations, including uh, foreign policy and how that policy affects domestic life. And so uh, foreign policy, or what's called, far, what falls under the broad purview of foreign policy is uh, plagued with a, a variety of economic issues, things like incentives, oftentimes perverse incentives, various constraints from resource constraints and, and knowledge or epistemic constraints and so on. And so this, this area is, is ripe for study by economists and, and economists are often very poor at studying this because uh, they just focus on kind of broad notions of defense. They oftentimes dismiss it as, or, or categorize it as a public good and really don't delve into the actual nitty gritty. And so it's our hope, among other things, to kind of shed light on that and, and use the tools of economics to shed light on the nuances of American foreign policy, the implications, and to also contribute to a broader conversation, not just among economists, but among a variety of other scholars and policymakers. When we say U.S. police militarization, what, what's the trend that we're, we're talking about? Uh, what's, uh, what are we not talking about, and what's the exact uh, issue? I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what... So you bring, up a, you bring up a good point. Um, we can talk about the militarization of police, which I think is probably what most people are thinking of when they're talking about militarization broadly, um, which would be the incorporation and the use of military tactics, uh, military dynamics, uh, and also military-grade weapons uh, in the use of civilian policing. Um, when we talk about militarization more broadly, uh, what we're referring to is this uh, larger idea uh, and focus on using 
uh, the military and military methods uh, as a means of fixing a variety of problems both domestically and abroad. One of the uh, crucial uh, features of the book is a discussion about what you, you have both termed the, the boomerang uh, effect. What, what is that and why is it important? So the boomerang effect is, is, as you mentioned, what we term kind of the general framework or, or, or focus of the book. And it's meant to be a, a very general, broad framework. And the core idea underpinning uh, what we call the boomerang effect is, is the following. Uh, foreign intervention, uh, both preparing for and engaging in foreign intervention, provides a laboratory, if you will, for uh, the American government to uh, uh, refine, develop, and innovate tools of social control to manipulate, shape, and influence the behavior of other people abroad. Uh, when the US government intervenes abroad, it is not subject to uh, the same constraints that it is when it intervenes in domestic life. The slack in those constraints allows it to do things that it otherwise would not do domestically. Uh, after those interventions end, or perhaps when they're ongoing in some instances, uh, those in innovations in social control oftentimes return home. They return to domestic uh, life. Uh, and in doing so, they change uh, the fabric of domestic life, oftentimes for the worse. And so uh, when this happens, uh, the relationship between government and the citizens changes. Uh, government uh, expands the scope of its power over our lives. And uh, it changes the way that, that daily life operates. And so what we want to point out, or one of the things we want to point out, is how this prof process manifests itself and, and unfolds. Mm -hmm. I thought, uh, while, while reading the book, it was interesting the discussion of how we get into this situation. Because it seems on paper that we have a, a government that's designed to, ex to restrain exactly this phenomenon. We have uh, a Congress that is supposed to restrain military interventions. We have a, a Bill of Rights that is supposed to protect us from uh, warrantless surveillance and from needless intrusions into our lives. Uh, this country was founded by people who were very skeptical of standing armies and uh, knew of the dangers of the military. Uh, how did we get to this stage, given that starting point? So one of the, the big takeaways from the book is, is exactly that, that even in instances where you have a government which may be very well constrained domestically and for all of its faults, uh, if you rank it, the US government is relatively well constrained compared to some of the alternatives, that even governments that are relatively well constrained, we can still see this erosion of those constraints as a result of foreign intervention. Um, and so that's been one of the big takeaways from this is that through engagement in activities abroad and even just the preparation for those types of activities abroad, that what we do is we can potentially create uh, an environment or a scenario in which some of those very freedoms that you were just discussing uh, can wind up being undermined. And it's not just a uh, post 9-11 discussion. Uh, one of the best things I think about the book is the the uh, the discussion about the uh, underappreciated role of the U.S. in the Philippines, which provided a bit of a laboratory for some of this. Uh, would you like to expand on uh, the U.S. involvement there? So uh, one of the things that was a surprise, I think, at least to, to me in, in conducting the research for this book, was what a critical role the U.S. occupation of the Philippines played. So I don't know if it was similar for other people in their educational experience, but at least for myself, uh, in the event that the US war in the Philippines was discussed at all in history courses, it was mentioned as a footnote to the Spanish-American War, and then it, it, was, it was done. But in three of the four cases that we presented in the book, uh, this 
conflict winds up playing a very important role. So for those who maybe aren't familiar, uh, the Spanish had ruled the Philippines for uh, several hundred years, and uh, the US government offered to assist in essentially ousting the Spanish as the colonizers from the Philippines. Uh, those who were working within the Philippines were under the impression that they were going to be uh, liberated uh, and that they were going to have uh, self-determination be able to create their own government. Uh, the US government, however, once the Spanish had been effectively kicked out, uh, annexed the island chain. Uh, and what this did was this then led to a brief formal war, but an insurgency that lasted for about a decade. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the US invested a variety of resources, which we detail uh, in the book, to quash that resistance. And from that, we get some really important seeds for important issues that we discuss. So things like torture, surveillance, as well as uh, militarized police. Mm. In, in at least libertarian circles, it's very common to hear discussion uh, about militarization in the context of policy, right? So that we have uh, a war on drugs, we have the war on terror, we have strict immigration crackdowns, and all of these uh, seem to have surveillance and militarization as a, a necessary prerequisite. But uh, the book seems to suggest that actually that's not necessarily the case. Uh, some people might say, well, uh, SWAT raids wouldn't be such a big deal if we legalized drugs. Uh, and we need SWAT raids for active shooters and for hostage situations. But the, the book seems to suggest that actually this, this predates the war on drugs and predates uh, a lot of the policies we're used to, to the, used to today. Is that a fair summary or analysis? Uh, certainly. Uh, and so uh, for each of the cases we consider, and there's many we didn't consider, uh, the, the origins of, of surveillance, of the militarization of police, uh, of torture, even, even the use of drones, uh, predates uh, uh, the war, certainly the war on terror and, and the war on drugs as well. Uh, these things all, all kind of emerged and started to evolve, uh, in many cases, decades if not centuries uh, or century prior. Uh, and, and there's been a variety of different factors that have led to their evolution and acceleration, the, the war on drugs and war on terror being two examples. Uh, but, but these things all existed prior to that and, and would have existed, in, albeit in different form, uh, if those two open-ended uh, wars, if you want to call them wars, if that's the proper name for them, um, didn't exist. What do you think about a, an objection that might go as follows, that we, we might all be concerned about mass surveillance, which includes uh, tons of collection of personal data, uh, the revelations uh, of Snowden certainly terrified uh, a lot of people, but someone might say, you know, in the 21st century, any adequate intelligence requires uh, the gathering of citizen data. There's, uh, in the age of the internet, it's very difficult to isolate communications that are only, only foreign, uh, that it, it's just necessary in the 21st century to engage in that kind of bulk collection. What, what do you think about that objection? Well, I would say it's not necessary. Uh, uh, it's an object of choice, uh, like all uh, decisions that are made. Uh, and, and it's only necessary because we're told it's necessary. Uh, and of course, when you collect a lot of information, when you surveil people, when you have military equipment, and we don't deny that in some, in some cases you can uh, stop bad things from happening. You can, you can uh, uh, surveil, uh, perhaps arrest, uh, kill uh, bad people, however people in government define those things. Uh, but uh, there's a significant unintended consequence of that. And that's really, in some sense, the point of the book. That there is a cost that is overlooked and neglected, which is that in granting government that power, uh, you are also granting them both power in the immediate term to abuse that power, 
but perhaps more importantly, you're creating a set of institutional precedents that can be used by future political leaders, uh, future bureaucrats, uh, in ways that were unanticipated and undesirable from the perspective of people that uh, initially implemented the system. And so kind of one of the checks we have at the end of the book, one of the, the thought experiments we have, because what, what do you do about this, of course, if, after you've identified the problem, is to draw upon one of the insights from David Hume, uh, what's, what's oftentimes called David Hume's political maxim. Uh, and, and Hume pointed out, he said, look, when we're thinking about political rules, uh, uh, one kind of way to frame that is to, to imagine that a knave uh, uh, was in power, rather than assuming that the kind of first best or idealized uh, uh, person, the purely other regarding person that would never abuse power uh, is in charge. And what kind of rules would you design if the knave was in charge? And so if we wanted to modernize that example, one way to think about it's like this. Imagine your least preferable politician, irrespective of your ideology, your political leanings, whatever. Steve, so it can be a, a actual person if you want to make it something concrete or a hypothetical. Um, imagine that person was in charge of, of the surveillance apparatus. Uh, are in charge of drone strikes or the use of drones. Uh, how would you feel about that? And what type of constraints would you want to put on, on that person? Now, admittedly, that is going to put strong constraints on people's behavior, such that if there is a, the good person gets in charge, they're going to be constrained as well. But it seems to me, given what's at stake with expanding government power and things that I believe to be valuable, namely basic human rights and human freedom, uh, that that's the kind of, of way we want to think. And it's, it's a useful uh, way. Not, not it doesn't answer all questions, but it's a useful kind of first pass at thinking about how we'd want to limit these things. And so going back to your question, uh, there's lots of things that can be done to, to limit abuses of surveillance, uh, intelligence. They're not done uh, because either incentives are, are absent or people don't enforce uh, existing rules. But, you know, one of the things to think about is, is it really necessary? You know, there's arguments to be made that collecting information, people say collect information, that helps you uh, make the world safer. Not necessarily. Uh, if you collect too much information, uh, sifting through it, distilling it, picking out the relevant information to act on becomes uh, extremely costly to do. And you can make the argument, and, and some people have made the argument, that having uh, too much intelligence, if you will, actually undermines the very goal of agencies that purport to protect freedoms and liberties. Because the analysts are so overwhelmed by data, by information, that they are unable to distill and pull out the necessary information to do their job correctly. And so when we think about things in those terms, it's far from clear that simply collecting information or collecting information on citizens is uh, either necessary or desirable. Isn't it a barrier to reform, though, that many people in, in government will always have the trump card of saying, well, you're not in the briefings. Like, you don't have clearance, you don't know what it's like to be in the Oval Office and to be given a file that says X, Y, Z. What, what's the adequate response to that kind of objection? Uh, th that, that's, a, in some sense, a non-argument. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an argument that, that, that proves everything and nothing. Uh, uh, of course we're not in the, in the, in the Oval Office in the room uh, uh, talking to them uh, or hearing the details. Uh, but it appears to, 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 to our way of thinking, at least, that the onus should be on people that promise uh, complete protection. And the, and, and the argument that if we trade off liberty and freedom, we'll be given security. Uh, given the empirical record of how governments have acted both uh, in America, uh, but more broadly uh, uh, in, from a time series perspective, so uh, across time, uh, that the onus should be on those who are, are promising grandiose outcomes to, to make the case and to justify the fact that they are asking for basically the removal of key constraints on their power in the name of protecting us. 
Something that might surprise people taking a look at the book is that it includes a whole chapter dedicated to torture. I think many people think of police militarization, they think of the actual equipment, whether it's uh, surveillance equipment or weapons. But Abby, there's a whole chapter dedicated to torture. Why, why, is, uh, why is that a topic worth including in the book? So we look at torture in a couple of different ways. Um, so all of the chapters in the book are centered around this framework that we have constructed for understanding how it is that the tools of foreign intervention come to be used at home. Uh, so as Chris mentioned earlier, when uh, governments, we focus particularly in this case on instances of the US government, when governments intervene abroad, they face either weaker or in some cases altogether absent constraints on their behavior. This provides a testing ground for the creation of new methods and the honing of existing methods of social control. Uh, under certain conditions, those tools can come to be used domestically. Um, so just very briefly, the channels that we discuss, we discuss human capital, so that would be the skill sets uh, that individuals possess. Uh, when an individual is finished in conducting a foreign intervention or their part in it, uh, those skills don't magically disappear. Uh, they become ingrained in the tool set that they have and take with them into future employment. Uh, related to that, but it, uh, on its own, is what we call uh, an organizational dynamics. So individuals who are taking part in a foreign intervention, uh, they use the types of organizational structures uh, when they return. So this may allow them in existing organizations, whether those are private or public, uh, to advance their careers, uh, or it, within an organization as it already exists, or it may allow them to start new organizations using these uh, dynamics, these organizational structures as, uh, as a basis. And we also discuss the use of physical capital or the tools of foreign intervention. So an obvious example would be something like drones. So when it comes to torture, uh, we look at a couple of different cases. Uh, so one is looking at the use particularly of what's known as the water cure, uh, which was a torture technique developed in the Philippines. Uh, it's what's known as a pumping technique. So if you're familiar with the concept of waterboarding, uh, you can think about it as uh, maybe, maybe a cousin, or basically the stomach is forcibly filled with gallons of water, uh, and then the person is either left there uh, in agony for the body to try to process it nat naturally, or the water is forcibly expelled, so you make someone vomit up all the water, and then you uh, repeat this. Um, this was something that was well known to have occurred in the Philippines, uh, and in very short order we find uh, that this same torture technique is being used on suspects in U.S. jails and U.S. prisons uh, to the extent that a commission is created in order to investigate uh, exactly what was happening with the use of the water cure domestically. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data uh, looking specifically at those numbers, A, because of historical record-keeping problems, uh, the secrecy of this, of obviously if you have uh, legal protections against things like unusual, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, you have an incentive to keep those types of techniques uh, under the rug or at least as clandestine as possible. Um, but also to the Great Depression happened to coincide right when the findings of this commission were starting to come out and so they were preempted. A little bit later on we discuss the use of what are called clean torture techniques or psychological torture techniques, uh, things which were developed uh, as a result of the end of World War II into the Cold War period and beyond. Uh, so things that we can certainly talk about further uh, might be things like uh, MKUltra or the 
attempts by the US government to do things like develop uh, a truth serum or a truth drug. So people might be familiar with uh, LSD experiments and things like that. Um, but also what we see particularly related to the Vietnam case uh, is the development of, again, these clean torture techniques. So what we mean by that are torture techniques that don't leave a mark. Uh, so these might be things uh, like stress positions or the use of electricity, which if done uh, correctly from the perspective of the person engaged in the torturing, uh, won't leave a mark. Uh, we see cases of those techniques developed again in places like Vietnam uh, being used domestically. Uh, the most famous case of this is probably in Chicago uh, by a man by the name of John Burge uh, in charge of what's known as Area 2. Uh, there has been uh, multiple lawsuits, uh, both against Burge himself as well as the Chicago Police Department, uh, primarily by men of color. Uh, for the use of torture techniques leading to things like false confessions and time in prison, uh, using these types of techniques uh, to the extent as if the foreign connection was not particularly clear. Uh, it has been referred to, or people have reported under oath, that when Burge and his colleagues referred to these torture techniques, they referred to them as, quote, the Vietnam special. When you are discussing uh, LSD, can you unpack that somewhat? In the book, you have the, these stories of uh, these unfortunate people who were basically drugged by uh, CIA, you know, who had who consumed LSD, and one of them ended up jumping out of a window, and others um, having bad trips. What was the story there? Sure. So, um, on the heels of World War II, uh, you have forces who land on the beaches of Normandy, and almost immediately after that, you have some, I think, ten thousand intelligence personnel who are quickly behind them. Um, their goal was to try to discern what it was that the Axis powers had developed uh, in terms of torture techniques, uh, also in terms of things like nuclear capabilities and things like that. Uh, what they wind up finding out is that there had been experiments uh, taking place in a variety of arenas. Uh, one chapter that didn't make the book delves into this in greater detail. Uh, looking at things like, is it possible to bend someone's will to your own? So is it possible for us to come up with some kind of a, a truth serum? So as part of this, the US uh, government, primarily through a program known as NKUltra, uh, was looking to develop uh, some kind of a, of a truth serum, or is it possible to, uh, again, bend someone's psychological will to your own for the purposes, again, of, of eliciting information? So we see. Uh, again, the use of psychological torture techniques, which is primarily what we focus on here, uh, but as well as part of that program, you also see things like the LSD experiments that you mentioned. Uh, so this included things like uh, commissioning prostitutes to pick up Johns. The prostitutes would then offer uh, their clients LSD. Uh, someone would be watching from behind a one-way mirror uh, to see what had occurred uh, as a result of these uh, drug trips uh, with impunity, because no one was going to go and report that they had solicited a prostitute and then had been uh, drugged as a result. Uh, so we look at a variety of those types of cases. It's um, certainly something I would encourage people to go look at if you're interested. Um, we know about it. The only reason we know about it is because after the CIA director, uh, Helms, ordered the files destroyed, somebody missed a few boxes. And so that's why we've got data. I was reminded of reading the book about a story that came out in 2017 of uh, aerial surveillance of, of Baltimore. There was this 
a company with the unambiguous name of Persistent Surveillance Systems uh, designed a technology for use in uh, foreign battlefields. The idea was you, you would attach this high-tech camera to a plane and it would fly around a city. And it gave users or analysts uh, what the developers described as Google Earth with TiVo. Uh, the, the soldiers could call up and say, hey, we had an IED at this intersection. And you could rewind and fast forward to figure out who placed uh, the bomb there and where they went afterwards. Uh, but it's been taken back and being used domestically. And uh, the residents of uh, Baltimore were certainly subject to this, uh, despite uh, the kind of oversight many people might like. But that, that's what I would like to, to ask about is, uh, at the end of the day, are you proposing uh, an outright moratorium on this kind of technology being used domestically at all? Or is there a kind of oversight process that's missing that you would like to implement? That's a, a great question. And the Baltimore example is just one of many. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something called Real-Time Regional Gateway, which is a, a data mining and processing system that was developed in Iraq and uh, has come back to be used along the southern border, which uh, allows for something similar, real-time collection of <coughs> massive amounts of information uh, in the name, of course, of protecting Americans from uh, uh, drugs, uh, terrorists, uh, immigrants, and so on. Uh, but of course, like most of these tools, uh, uh, they, they sweep up a huge amount of information on, on private citizens that are not the targets or uh, have not done anything wrong. Uh, but in the book itself, to, to return to your question, we do not provide any firm answer or, or even kind of specific rule for figuring out what the optimal amount of, of rules and constraints are. Um, I, look, ideally, you'd have constraints to, to limit, the, and this is the dilemma, you would have constraints to limit government abusing this. The problem is, and it's always been, again, not just since 9-11, since well before then, through, from the very origins of when people started thinking about the state, government, and constitutions, is how do you give government an awesome set of powers and simultaneously constrain them from abusing that? What's the solution? Checks and balances and various rules. But here's the problem. When it comes to matters of national security, those rules and constraints are typically the weakest because people say you need to grant government slack in order to address crisis situations. That's when we need government to do things. But that means granting them uh, uh, significant slack in those constraints. In addition, of course, to the internal dynamics and industrial organization of governments, which is to continually push to expand those constraints, or excuse me, to, uh, to expand the slack in those constraints. And so that's the, the dilemma you face. Uh, 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 you know, at a, at a minimum, I would say this to provide a concrete answer. It would be nice if existing rules were followed. That would be a start. Uh, uh, before we talked about new rules. But we know they're not. The reason we know they're not, of course, is because people don't follow the rules. And, and thank the Lord, uh, those people are called whistleblowers. Uh, uh, they're the ones that oftentimes inform us as democratic participants that, that various representatives and bureaucrats who are supposed to be looking out for our well-being are, in fact, abusing that power. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, you know, another kind of check we might think about is, is reforming various laws that uh, reward whistleblowers for revealing this wrongdoing because it is an important check on abuses of power. But that's the way I'd think about it. I'd, I'd think about it as saying, look, can we have constraints? Can we enforce the rules? How realistic is that? And absent that, you know, a moratorium is a strong way to put it, but I would default towards that. I, I, my view is that the onus should always be on the proponent uh, of, of expanding government power. But also, if you think about it, expanding government power with very simplified, I would argue, naive promises. People will say things like, you know, just give us more power and we will make you safe. Uh, no, you won't, because that's impossible. So, so don't say that. Uh, that's not a realistic discussion of the trade-offs. 
the, the, the burden is on people who want us to give up our liberties and freedoms to justify it. And in my, to my way of thinking, and again, it will vary from person to person, that bar uh, of evidence uh, should be quite high. Uh, uh, recognizing fully, as we point out in the conclusion, that in a free society, bad things are going to happen. You cannot prevent all bad things from happening. Uh, uh, people are going to kill other people. Terrorists are going to strike. Uh, there's no way to avoid this. Uh, people can promise you they can avoid it, but it's, it's not true. There, there's no way to avoid it, not without going uh, uh, full authoritarian. Uh, and even then, you can't avoid it completely. Uh, and so, so navigating that trade-off is, is a hard one, uh, but one that we think our, our book provides insight into while not offering a concrete, specific answer, which is uh, impossible to do. One of the more depressing parts of the book, and, well, there are many to pick from, but there's, uh, was a mention of, of work done by uh, a, former, a former Cato employee, uh, Radley Bowker, who was one of the first people to really do a deep dive on police militarization. He's the author of the book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop. And in, in the book, you note uh, some of Radley's work on the, the warrior mindset that's, that's oftentimes encouraged in domestic law enforcement. Uh, you note Bowker reports that clothing marketed to police departments and worn by off-duty off include texts such as narcotics, you huff and puff and will blow your door down, a human trash collector, uh, save the police some time, beat yourself up. Uh, math for cops, uh, two in the chest, one in the head equals problem solved. And part of this, this uh, raises an obvious question, which is that there's a hardware problem, there's a policy problem, but it seems a really difficult fix is going to be a cultural problem where people assume that police should be acting like soldiers, and that's actually a necessary condition of their job. Is there any hope that that can be changed? I think there is hope that that, that can be changed. Um, and certainly one of the things that I think is important to point out is that um, we're in, in, in no way um, trying to paint all members of law enforcement or all members of the military with, with a, a broad brush of these are bad people and this is why we have these problems. Um, that's, that's not what we're, what we're saying at all. Um, but the point is certainly valid about uh, an institutional problem. And so one of the uh, things that I think is particularly important for uh, what you bring up is that, and what we look at is that over a period of time, there has been this continued cultivation of the, or this blurring between police and military, which we can trace all the way back to the Philippines, but as you pointed out, people have tend to really start paying attention to uh, after Ferguson. And so the question then becomes, how do you go rolling back those types of integrations. So now that the line between police and military has become progressively blurred uh, over, in this case, over a century, um, is there a way to then disentangle that? Um, because people have pointed out that perhaps military personnel might have some very valuable qualities that might be useful in law enforcement. I think that's probably absolutely true. Um, but I think there are also some problematic qualities, uh, which are things that we, we highlight in the book and other people have brought up as well, looking at things like uh, if you have a police officer who's an Iraq war veteran, are they more likely to respond with force than someone who is a non-veteran? Um, so I think that those are complex and complicated questions. I don't have, uh, and we, we don't offer any concrete solutions to how you might go about disentangling them. Um, but I guess my, my general stance is that I'm always long-run optimist. Uh, perhaps even though a short-run pessimist. 
uh, maybe I could test your optimism on a slightly different question uh, on at least political culture, not law enforcement culture, but it's, uh, it always makes me feel old when I consider that there are people who, uh, many millions of people who are alive, um, who are uh, in high school or going into to university, who uh, grew up in a world where there was a Department of Homeland Security, that there was you know, TSA, these body scanners, and it's just considered normal. And it doesn't take long for these kind of changes that were pretty dramatic at the time to just be considered a, an ordinary part of our political furniture is, that any hope that we could return to a pre-DHS world or pre-TSA world? Uh, I mean, there's, there's always a possibility. I, I, and so, look, we live in a world that has been shaped, influenced, and manipulated by government in, in a variety of ways that I would uh, argue are, are, are perverse and, and negative. And, and that's the world we live in. And that continues. That continues to unfold. There are many reasons for that. Many reasons. In, in this book, we, we try to identify one mechanism or slice of that, which is it's our argument that a proactive militaristic foreign policy leads to uh, many undesirable features which are oftentimes overlooked. Uh, they, they add, to use your language, to the political furniture of, of, of ways the government intrudes in our lives. Can that be reversed? Of course it can be reversed. Anything can be reversed. And so the argument is not one of, of kind of determinism. Or, um, it's hard to do. Just like changing any government policy, any, any kind of uh, 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 kind of established way of doing things is difficult to do, and it's costly. So our theory is one kind of of stickiness, not of, of irreversibility. The question then becomes, of course, what do you have to do to, to reverse it? And that's hard. But I think ultimately what it comes down to and kind of where we conclude in the book is it's ultimately on the shoulders of citizens. Uh, and look, being a participant in a free society, in a free democratic society, places a significant burden on the participants in that system. Uh, not just with matters of foreign affairs, but in general. Uh, uh, and in some sense, the worst thing you can do to freedom is, is simply to be indifferent about it and just say, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I'm, I'm too busy uh, uh, to care about this, so I'm simply going to turn it over to other people. Uh, uh, that's, that creates significant problems. And so uh, when it comes to matters of national security in the broadest sense and all the things we've been talking about, government is not going to reform itself. We do not need another commission, another report on how to reform government. We have plenty of them. We, have pl we know what to, how to reform government. Don't do certain things. Uh, establish constraints and enforce the constraints. That's how you, that's how you uh, avoid these things. Uh, but repeatedly, those things don't happen. And so we have to ask ourselves why. Uh, I would suggest it is a feature of the system. It is an inherent feature of the system itself. So one way to... to uh, 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 avoid that is to avoid the system. That requires citizens, among other things, to not be over-reliant on government for safety and security, and to realize that much of what falls under the purview of safety and security as defined by the government uh, is, is nothing of the sort, uh, and that even to the extent that government does improve safety on one margin, it decreases our safety and security on other margins. Uh, that is, even if government does make us more secure from external threats, in doing so, it makes us less secure from internal threats, namely of government, of our domestic government. And navigating that trade-off is a difficult one, but one that we think is valuable to think about. And so ultimately, where, where we come down is the burden is on the ideology of citizens. And to the extent that, and if you look at public opinion polls, they vary, of course, but lots of people are comfortable in the post-9-11 world with government doing what they do. Uh, in some cases, by the way, people want them to do, to, to, uh, large numbers of people want them to do even more surveilling, more militarization, and so on. 
To the extent that happens, uh, the game is over uh, because uh, you are uh, granting either implicit or explicit consent for government to not just uh, take advantage of existing slack and constraints, uh, but also to, to continue to drive the wedge uh, uh, between uh, the constraints on power uh, and, and how the power and the outcomes that come from government action uh, undermine the liberty and freedoms of, of ordinary people. And so it's a significant burden that it puts on, on citizens, but one that we think people are up for, if they so choose, if they value it. Uh, and of course, in America, in the history of America, there's been ebbs and flows. There's been periods of time throughout American history where, where citizens were highly skeptical of uh, uh, government uh, uh, intervening abroad. Uh, and so it's not unheard of, uh, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot. Uh, and so there's no easy solution to that other than, than pointing that out. It's uh, always depressing, I think, to look at uh, polls in, in the wake of big disasters like 9-11, if you look at the, the support for national ID cards and things, there seems to be a bit of a, a, a spike there. But even with a, a, a culture or ideological change among enough people uh, with, with citizens, isn't there a problem with political incentives where uh, you, you might well believe that we live in a, a country that has too much surveillance of citizens and, and residents, but if you're a congressman or senator, and you're, you voted for a bill that has rolled a lot of this stuff back, and then the next 9-11 happens on your watch. Isn't that providing a lot of disincentive for action? I mean, certainly there are a variety of political incentives in, in place. Um, standard analysis of the you know, economics of bureaucracy or basic public choice or the economics of politics uh, gets at a lot of those things that you just mentioned. Uh, no one is probably going to be able to effectively run on a campaign, for example, that appears to be soft on issues of foreign security. So it's politically unpalatable for me to stand up and say things like, you know, the TSA actually fails 95% of its own exams. Uh, as far as we know, they have yet to apprehend a single terrorist, and therefore, all of this money that we have been spending on them would probably be best spent elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I would have just very quickly talked myself out of any hope of gaining some kind of a political office. Um, and so that's a certainly uh, a component to it as well. Um, as Chris mentioned a few moments ago, we don't uh, purport to have any kind of clear and fast answers. Um, and certainly any kinds of changes back in the opposite direction uh, would likely be difficult. Uh, however, these things aren't impossible. So we do see instances throughout history of citizens saying or uh, pushing back against government expansion. One has to do, uh, for instance, with uh, propaganda. and citizens pushing back and saying they're uncomfortable uh, with government engaging in these particular activities, and at least for a period of time, again, uh, the ebb and flows being very critical, I think, to that as well, um, having certain instances where government has reached into a new area, having those reaches pulled back. You've mentioned a few times the use of foreign battlefields as testing grounds uh, for, for a lot of this technology. But how much of the deployment back on the home front is post hoc? I mean, are there examples of people saying, you know what, we would like to use this domestically, but let's test it out in a foreign battlefield first? Or does it usually happen that they notice it works in foreign battlefields and then they take it home? I, I think that it's a, it's a combination. Mm -hmm. so, so there's, you know, of that. And so, you know, in our reading, at least of the case studies we focus on in the uh, in the book, and, and there's many others as well as I, as I mentioned earlier, there's no clear example of, of someone being like, I want to use this to control people domestically, but let me go test it out abroad. And as Abby pointed out earlier, I want to make clear, our, our theory is not one what's often called a bad man theory. It's not that bad people do bad stuff, and then they come back home and do bad stuff. 
It's that people are embedded in various institutional environments. Foreign intervention requires a particular mindset and a particular type of actions. And through a long chain of events, under certain conditions, those technologies and methods can return home. So think about it. What does a foreign intervention entail at its core? It requires a willingness to control other people. A, a, a group of political elites observe occurrences in another society and for whatever reason determine that they are unsatisfied with what other human beings are doing. And they take active steps to change that behavior. That requires certain things. Mainly it requires a, 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 a set of tools uh, and methods to control people, to get them to do what you want. That can be uh, uh, by asking them. That can be through incentivizing them, either through kind of some kind of payment or through force or threat thereof. And uh, that's ultimately what foreign intervention entails, social control. So through that process, new forms of social control are formed. Then it returns back home because once a technology is created, once something is, 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 uh, exists, uh, it's not like it just goes on the shelf. Or if it does go on the shelf, it only goes on the shelf for a while. And so you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, the, you know, there's, there's current examples. You brought up Baltimore. I, I brought up the, the real-time uh, uh, regional gateway. That was developed, that technology was developed in Iraq to help soldiers in the mid-2000s, and it did. It helped collect lots of information that soldiers could use to kill insurgents, with, of course, collateral damage as a side effect. So you might say, okay, that accomplished what uh, uh, it was supposed to accomplish. So then what happens? Does this just sit there? Uh, do, do people just say, okay, that served its purpose, now let's retire that? Uh, of course not. They say, look, uh, we're doing all these other things domestically, so why don't we leverage that technology? The same way we talk about, think about it the same way we talk about technology in markets, in, in private life. And we talk about it as making our lives better off, as reducing the cost of doing things. Take that same logic, pick it up, and apply it to government using the tools of social control. So you have technologies that make government more efficient at controlling people. It lowers the cost. It's more covert. And it empowers them to do lots of things that they couldn't do otherwise. That stuff is going to return home. And so uh, that's the process through which this occurs. It's not that every foreign intervention leads to the demise of, of liberty and freedom, by the way. It's a, it's a slow, cumulative process. It, it ebbs and flows. Some interventions come, uh, lead to new technologies and methods. Others don't. Uh, and, and so it's, it's not some neat, linear, deterministic process, but rather a, a, a kind of jagged, evolutionary process of, of ups and downs. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, a lot of the people that uh, we talk about and we analyze historically in the book at least uh, the, uh, according to the evidence, uh, which is, is, is what we have available, you know, they weren't doing these things that, you know, in the Philippines, it's, it, people weren't saying like, let me uh, introduce surveillance so that I can uh, uh, bring down uh, American freedom uh, uh, in the year 2000. Uh, uh, they said, look, we want to control people to accomplish US goals. And then they said it worked. And now we want to set up something domestically to get the bad guys, all right? But then you have to ask yourself, uh, uh, what is necessary to use the, the power that comes with that a technology and the efficiency that it, it includes that is going to limit it to only uh, getting bad guys and not being abused. And that's where the kind of a lot of the issues arise. Uh, Abby, I wanted to ask a question about drones, which are a whole branch of technology I spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I'm, I'm slightly worried that while commercial drones become more and more common, if, if we have you know, the, these the idea being we'll have delivery drones and we'll have photography drones and these will become cheaper and they'll proliferate. Uh, I'm worried that there's potentially going to be an argument from law enforcement saying, 
Well, in a world where every Tom, Dick, and Harry has their own little drone, of course society as a whole has reduced expectations of privacy. But we now live in a world where people can watch. So why should police be treated differently? Uh, is, this, is this something you, you've thought about, or, and do you think it's a valid concern? I mean, certainly people make those arguments. You hear something very similar when talking about policing and, and uh, police weapons. So they'll say things like, well, in a world where you know, your drug dealer has a, you know, a Apache helicopter or something like that, do you really want to live in a world where your police departments don't also have Apache helicopters with you know, a bunch of other bells and whistles on them? I think it's important for us to note when we're talking about not just drones, but other technologies that we mention in the book, and, and just generally, um, that none of these technologies are inherently bad. So as you pointed out, there's potentially uh, fantastic civilian uses for drones. Um, we focus primarily on the, the government use, or exclusively on, on the government use. I mean, even there, we could see that there is an argument to be made that there are potential positives to having law enforcement or other uh, branches of government using drone technology. So for instance, things like uh, search and rescue operations or even fighting fires, drones can have a very, uh, or have the potential to have a very useful, um, or they have the potential to be very useful. The problem with this comes in from those other uses, those uses that we might not want. So you're starting to see things now like uh, the drones which were used for uh, or primarily in the war on terror, almost immediately were being used to patrol the U.S. border. Uh, police departments have been consistently borrowing drone technologies from, uh, I believe it's the FBI, or the uh, or Customs and, and Border Enforcement. And further discussions about things like arming police drones. Um, and so the, the, one of the questions it boils down to, and this is something that we, we discuss in the book, is this idea of this, this paradox of power, that regardless of what it is that you think the government should be doing, so whether you think it's nothing or you think the government should be providing a, a laundry list of uh, goods and services to citizens, uh, you have to simultaneously grant government the ability to do all of those things that we might want them to do. So in the case of drones, if we want them to engage in search and rescue, we want them to engage uh, in helping with agricultural yields or things like that. How do we design, or can we design rules to get those outcomes and yet simultaneously constrain government to avoid those potential uses, uh, which we don't want, again, for whatever reasons we might not want them, if it's uh, concerns about security, privacy, things like that. Would a, a warrant requirement or something similar be in, in the, on the list of potential reform? Potentially. So one of the things that we've seen, and we saw this uh, in the police militarization uh, study, we've seen this in surveillance, and we've seen this elsewhere, and Chris mentioned earlier, is that a lot of the constraints which are supposed to prevent the abuse of these oftentimes don't actually function the way that they should. Um, so when it comes to drones, obviously this is still an area that is continuously evolving, and in some cases the case law is not necessarily clear. Um, from the case law that we do have related to things like aerial surveillance with airplanes, um, that's kind of set the precedent. And so uh, do I think a warrant may help that? Uh, maybe, although I'm not 100% confident in that answer. Mm. Uh, I've just been, I might be overthinking the visual here, but the, the, the idea of a, a boomerang effect, of course, 
boomerangs are supposed to come back to the person who throws it. Uh, but we've seen abroad, uh, for example, Chinese surveillance uh, equipment has found its way into other countries. Uh, uh, the Chinese seem uh, unreserved about sharing a lot of the, the surveillance and policing uh, tools that they use. Um, has, have you noticed any um, American equivalent of that? Have, um, have any of our surveillance or uh, policing tools found their way into foreign hands? Well, the U.S. government has a long history of training various dictators throughout Latin America and elsewhere in torture techniques. Uh, so that's certainly, uh, and, re, and in that process, refining their own torture techniques. Uh, there's a historian by the name of Alfred McCoy who's uh, written a book called The Question of Torture where he details this. And so that's one example of, of, of that. Um, and, and, uh, of course, uh, you know, in the book we talk about how governments can e uh, develop their own physical capital. They can innovate, but they also can uh, import it as well either uh, through other governments giving it to them or, of course, selling it. And, of course, the U.S. government is also the large wor uh, lar uh, world's largest arms dealer uh, on the international stage, uh, uh, both to developed countries and to developing countries. And I, I point out that distinction because oftentimes in developing countries, the constraints on governments are uh, on the recipient government of, of various military weaponry and, and uh, goods and supplies are relatively weak. And so from that standpoint, the, the influence of the American government when it comes to military matters uh, is, is pretty much everywhere. Are there any technologies, uh, since the book's been published, are there any surveillance technologies that have become uh, prominent uh, that, that especially concern you now in 2019? Uh, obviously, I don't know if you're planning a sequel, but I thought I would ask anyway. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, of, of the ones we know about, the main one I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, the, the real-time regional gateway, which linked up with that. that that's, a, that's a system for collecting data. But as part of that, there's, there's tools for collecting that data. Uh, and, and so to provide one il illustration, uh, uh, you might have heard the term uh, DRTs, or, or dirt box, or a stingray. Uh, these are, these are, are small, relatively small devices, and they uh, uh, simulate cell phone towers. Uh, and so they, they, what they do is they, uh, if, when you turn one on, they, they connect to the cell phones within a geographic space. Uh, and they uh, collect various uh, different types of data. And what exactly they collect, we don't know because of a, of a lack of transparency, because we're told we're not in the back room and we can't know. It's too important that we don't know as citizens. And so at a minimum, it can collect data on the location of people possessing a cell phone. Uh, uh, some reports indicate that it can collect more information, content on phones, uh, and so on. Uh, a significant number of police departments, of, of the largest police departments in the United States, have this technology provided to them by uh, the federal government. Uh, I forget the exact statistics, but it's something like uh, what we know is something like high 30s, like 39 of the, of the largest 50 U.S. police departments are known to have these things. Uh, and uh, we only know them because uh, uh, through discovery procedures in courts when, they, when, when, when the governments uh, uh, or the police departments that uh, utilize these technologies have to justify them in court. Oftentimes then they'll withdraw the case or they'll engage in parallel construction. They will uh, uh, use uh, other kind of occurrences to justify the various intrusions that they have used to uh, 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 unveil the, the relevant data uh, so that they don't have to unveil that they have used these surveillance techniques. The problem with the Stingray technology, of course, is there's no warrants, there's very little to no oversight, and it collects information. You can't just target one person, so it's collecting information in, in, of, of people in a geographic space. Now again, some people come back and say, good, I'm willing to do that because uh, 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 you know, you're going to catch some bad people in the process. 
for those who are, are more concerned about uh, uh, you know, other individuals having access to your and other ordinary innocent people's information, uh, that's troubling. Uh, but that's just one example. Uh, uh, and there'll be many others. I don't know what they are, but they'll come out, I assure you. They'll come out slowly and over time. Uh, uh, but we know, what we do know is the U.S. government already has a, a, a massive, sophisticated uh, uh, surveillance uh, apparatus in place, and that it invests a significant amount of resources, not just operating that, but refining it and developing it. Uh, and so, again, just like any other walk of life, there's continual technological advances. Uh, it's just when will those be revealed, and that's going to be a matter of uh, a variety of forces, investigative journalism, whistleblowers, and so on. Uh, not to add a more depressing news, but uh, last year, the Associated Press reported that even uh, American uh, reforms on this might not be enough for residents of, of this city because it's, uh, it was discovered that quite a few foreign embassies use stingrays as well, so uh, you might not be able to escape a lot of uh, foreign governments who engage in this kind of uh, technology too. Uh, before turning it over to, uh, to the audience for, for a Q&A, I wanted to ask about something you, you both mentioned at the end of the book, which is the, the role of, uh, of patriotism and, and how uh, many people seem to confuse love of their government with love of their country. And uh, is, is this a distinction you still find people find difficult to make a lot of the time? And what role does that uh, distinction play in this, this discussion? I can start with that. I, I think that oftentimes there is a tendency to confuse the idea that in order to love your country, you must therefore support all of the things that your country is doing. And so particularly in discussing and in writing about and being critical of US foreign policy, there is a tendency for the automatic pushback to be, well, you're criticizing, say, for example, the war on terror. Therefore, you are anti-military, you're anti-government, you don't support our troops. Um, and I think what, what we try to point out and what I would hope if I could wave a wand and maybe get uh, people to change their minds about particular things, there's, there's lots, but this might be one, that in order to truly protect those freedoms that we are founded upon and that for people like me and I'm sure for other people here as well really care about. The important piece to note is that in order to preserve those things that we really care about, it requires looking at what our government does with a critical eye, including those things that involve uh, the US military, which is often seen, I think, as being like the, one of the sacred cows of again, if you, if you question what's going on with the military, um, your idea, the, this, that idea of patriotism is, is being questioned. You know, a lot of this comes from Randolph Bourne, of course, that everyone likes to say war is the health of the state, or a lot of libertarians, some conservatives, um, sometimes talk about this. Uh, but, but, you know, you gotta actually read Bourne. What, what Bourne says in War and Health of the State is he differentiates between the state, government, and country. So your country, is your people, whatever that, that matters in a geographic space, the people you interact with. You have, you know, Bourne talks about some shared notion of values. Uh, uh, government is the political apparatus uh, uh, that things happen, which is embodied in the state. And so for, for Bourne, the state and government are the apparatus of force. And so as Bourne points out, you can love your country, love the community of people you are and everything that stands for, and simultaneously 
be quite unhappy if not outright despise your government and state. And to the extent that you think the, your government and state are doing things to undermine your country, uh, uh, the true patriot uh, uh, does find that uh, uh, repulsive. Uh, and so, you know, at the end, when we talk about, again, coming back to what we do and we, uh, what we do about all this, and we talk about the, the burden on citizens, one of the, the things we highlight is that people have to be, irrespective of political party, which so often this gets divided along partisan lines, you have to be skeptical about what government does across the board. You also have to be aware of political incentives and the perverse political incentives that politicians face. So what kind of incentives do they face? You pointed the one about constituents and not wanting to be you know, kind of on the hook for advocating for less militarism with an attack. What's another one? Threat inflation. Uh, we live in the most dangerous time in the world. There's, a, a con there's something out to get us around every corner. Oh, no, there's not. Uh, the incentive is to say that, of course, so that people turn over power to you. Uh, but it's just not empirically true. Uh, and so uh, uh, the burden is on the citizen to, to do these things. It's a, it's a heavy burden, by the way, one that many people are, are unwilling to take. But that's what it requires. Uh, and that's ultimately the ultimate check on government uh, and, and the most powerful check I would, I would submit. All right. Well, I said I would turn it over to audience, but, you know, this is my show, so I'm going to do one more uh, because I just thought of it. Uh, so uh, I promise I'll, I'll get to you. Uh, I wanted to, to offer a, a potential compromise and think what you both might think of this. Uh, so we, we, we live in a world where there's technology that's capable of keeping whole towns and cities under persistent aerial surveillance, say, and uh, we also have CCTV. We have police with body cameras and potentially in the not-too-distant future outfitting those cameras with uh, facial recognition. And so we, there, there are worries here. There's a ratcheting up of the degree uh, to which governments are um, intruding into our lives. But what about a compromise where we say, well, okay, you, the police can use all of this. This is fine. But the citizens get to access it too. So the police get to look at the live feeds. But then citizens uh, with that technology would also be able to see footage of every piece of police abuse. And we'd be able to keep an eye on the state even more. Is that a, a compromise you would be happy with? Uh, would I be happy with it? I, I certainly think it might be an improvement, uh, depending on the specifics, mm -hmm. uh, which, which would have to be worked out. Uh, and so, you know, Given the state of, the, of affairs, the world we live in, we can think of kind of wholesale changes or marginal changes. And so to, to my way of thinking, marginal changes that increase transparency would certainly be uh, desirable. Uh, but for the point you raised earlier about political incentives, I doubt uh, uh, police unions, uh, among others, would, would ever uh, agree with, with uh, the idea that this is a compromise that's suitable. But uh, your point's well taken, and those, that, that is one way to think about uh, uh, those type of ways or ways of thinking about you know, kind of marginal changes to improve the situation or at least to reduce some of the potential abuses of that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. We are now in the Q&A session. A few, a few notes here. Uh, please wait to be called on. I have a couple of my colleagues here with microphones. Uh, please wait for them so it ensures that anyone watching online will be able to hear. Uh, and please uh, announce your name and affiliation. Uh, I would like to remind everyone this is the question and answer session, not the statement and speech uh, session. I beseech you in the strongest possible terms to please uh, keep your statement to one that ends in a question mark. Uh, and whoever asks the first question can lead by good example. Yes, sir. Okay, um, my name is Mike Zahn. I'm a uh, technology investor. Uh, interested in uh, the fact that uh, we've conceded some things that uh, as long as there's probable cause and due process, 
um, and uh, we're doing laws that, uh, that have been tested and we agree, uh, in, the, in that face, uh, as we saw in the FISA court uh, and the unmasking of collateral things, there's always a, a, a possibility of being wrong and not knowing when you're right. Errors of the first kind, errors of the second kind, and even errors of the third and fourth kind. So you end up saying that uh, if you use these, if you created a database uh, that you saw who did what to whom and when, uh, like they apparently have in Chicago, so they can tell who shot who where, uh, or they have in China, so if, with facial recognition, uh, would that solve the problem if you, uh, uh, in a satisfactory way, if there was due process ensured? Yeah, is this a question of uh, the process behind the surveillance or a question about the technology? I suppose? A, a combination of both, I think. I, I don't know that they're neatly separable. And, and here's what I would, I would suggest in response to this. If you could guarantee due process, of course, uh, many of the problems we're discussing and many of the problems we haven't discussed that are related would, would be non-issues. Uh, the question, of course, is, is can you guarantee or, or how confident are you that, that due process is actually taking place? Uh, more broadly, to move beyond due process, are there constraints on, on, on abuses of power? Again, in, in, a, in a first best world, uh, of course, you know, government would use its powers to, to advance the, the, the safety of citizens. It would not ever be abused, uh, and so on. We don't live in that world. We live in deviations from it. The debate really then becomes, uh, 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 what's the magnitude of that deviation from the first best? Uh, uh, and, and that's where things get tricky. Uh, I will say this, you know, whether it's due process, whether it's other checks and balances, again, we have lots of legal scholars, policymakers, various commissions and reform, reformers have outlined a large list of things that, that could in principle be done. And on paper they work, uh, but they're either not implemented or they're, they're implemented in a way that simply shifts the problem up. So you have the FISA court in response to a government abuses of power, but then the FISA court, that just shifts it up, which is who's going to watch the FISA court? You always run into the fundamental problem of, of who's going to watch the, the watchman. That's the, the fundamental problem with government, checking government in general. And so uh, even, a, even a, a solution that solves some problems that exist is just going to create a whole new set of problems. Uh, because ultimately, and, and, and this goes back to the point you were raising earlier, Matthew, about you know, the, 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 the justification that, well, we need to do this because it's, it, we need to be covert because it's natural surveillance, uh, national surveillance, uh, is the argument always falls back on it needs to be covert. It need, there needs to be secrecy. Uh, uh, again, a debate over how much, which means there's going to be removed, citizens are going to be removed. There's, there might be, in principle, some congressional oversight, but even congressional oversight is severely limited. And the problem, of course, is the people doing the surveilling provide the information about their surveillance activities to the oversight members, uh, to citizens. And so you have uh, distortions in that information. And so, uh, you know. While in principle I would agree that, that ideal or near ideal due process would overcome a lot of these issues, I'm highly skeptical that when you introduce these technologies that you're mentioning in there, and there's others as well, that those kind of things are, are, are going to occur in practice. Yeah, there, there are a variety of examples, and some of them we, we utilize in the book, um, some related to issues of, of police militarization, so related to surveillance but not, not quite the same. Um, you take the primary law that was intended to separate police from the military, at least if you look at a history of police militarization. Uh, the Posse Comitatus Act was uh, created and adopted in the Reconstruction period. So the idea was that uh, 
after uh, the US military had attempted to prevent recently emancipated Southern blacks from voting, uh, it was put uh, into law that the military could not be used as a posse comitatus or a force of the people. Uh, but what we see is that almost immediately, uh, even though this law is in place, uh, it's pretty much violated from the get-go. Like, the ink is not dry. And they're saying, oh, well, those Western territories aren't states, so technically this doesn't apply. Or during World War I or World War II, it's relaxed. And then later on, we get to a series of court cases uh, in which the US military branches thereof have been used uh, in order to engage with uh, civilian populations. It was a group of Native Americans. was called the Wounded Knee Cases, uh, which essentially guts uh, the rest of that if it had any teeth to it at all. And so there are lots of examples of instances where if those constraints are in place and it's guaranteed that they will function the way that they're supposed to, probably. But we have lots of examples where even when those constraints are put in place, they're not enforced. Uh, yeah, I'll take this gentleman. Yeah. Hi, I'm Matt Bufton from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Uh, I saw the books dedicated to Robert Higgs, and I think Higgs might theorize you'd have a ratchet effect. So you have the war in the Philippines, uh, you lose freedoms here, Vietnam, it gets worse, it gets worse, it never gets better. But also I could imagine a case where it's worse right after war, and then it gets better, and then there's another war and it gets worse. Do you have any data or theories about which of those two might be more true? Certainly. And, uh, uh, well, I have, I have an idea. I don't have a firm answer to your question, which I don't know the specifics. But I will say this. You know, I. I uh, the, our reading of, of the history of the cases that we present in the book is such that there are not clear spikes necessarily immediately after war. Uh, in many cases, actually, it, during war and after, the new innovations don't come back necessarily immediately. In some cases, they do. As I mentioned, there's surveillance technologies that were used in Iraq long ago that are now being used here with those wars going on and seemingly never ending. But in many instances, the, what happens is they're developed abroad at least historically, the war ends, or at least there's, there's some end point, and then they, they return home. Again, not through some nefarious, in many instances, nefarious motivation, uh, but because uh, people have certain skills. They come home. If you look at the origins of, of sur the surveillance state in America, for instance, uh, uh, and, and where it came from, it came from the Philippines. And after the people set it up in, in the Philippines, they, that, uh, that tour of duty ended for them. They came home. They went into the, uh, uh, work for the military, the American government, and what did they do? They took their human capital and decided to set up a similar apparatus at home. Uh, and so it's not always a neat correlation between a war happens, you get the spike, and then it goes down. Uh, in many cases, uh, 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 it takes a while for it to come home. And more interestingly, uh, it takes sometimes decades for uh, something to actually appear, uh, or at least become uh, recognizable to American citizens. And so there's no tight correlation that we found that I can, I can provide any generalizable characteristics. Uh, I want to go to, the, I saw there was a gentleman in the back here, yes. Uh, keep your hand raised so my colleague can find you. Yep. I'll come to this side. Thank you for your time today. Jack Shaman from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, looking forward to the read. Very similar question, uh, and I believe you may have hinted at it. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned Philippines, Vietnam, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, all counterinsurgency operations, and I'm wondering if we've brought home some of these more uh, undesirable interrogation tactics, torture, domestic surveillance, military-like tactics. Um, 
were those brought from counterinsurgency operations more so than conventional wars, or is it sort of across the board, we're picking all of this up in foreign interventions and bring it back? Uh, I would say, based on my reading of the evidence, that typically, not always, but typically you see the emergence of social control technologies. Counterinsurgency is one part of it, but it's not just counterinsurgency. It is more expansive, elective type interventions. So anything that, that you know, you have counterinsurgency is part of it, but nation building. A key part of nation building, of course, is telling people what to do because you want to build a nation, you have a blueprint for how it should look. That requires force. So that, and we point out in the book, the type of intervention, not just the motivation, but the type of how it's carried out is clearly, uh, you know, clearly going to change. You know, the military delivering bottles of water to people is clearly going to have a different effect than the military engaging in counterinsurgency. And so kind of a broad pattern prediction, pattern meaning you know, it's generalizable, but, but it's, it's not a guarantee, is when you are involved in things that involve things like counterinsurgency, when you are involved in actually implementing and imposing things upon people, you are more likely going to need to adopt various tools and refine various tools and methods for controlling them, more so as compared to, to something like someone might call a purely humanitarian intervention to the extent those exist. One of the things that we do point out, which I think might be helpful to add, is that one of the things that we discuss is that it's not just the engagement in the foreign intervention actively, but also potentially the preparation for a possible foreign intervention. So one of the things that comes into play several times throughout the book is that you see uh, Cold War threats uh, there in, in scare quotes uh, also being a motivator for developing a variety of these tactics. So looking at things like drones and microprocessing systems in particular is what I'm thinking of, but certainly there are other examples as well. I want to piggyback on that slightly because uh, one war that wasn't explicitly mentioned in the question is, is World War II. And, and in the book you, you quote Benjamin Page and Robert Shapiro who noted the, the significance of it and that it transformed uh, American public opinion about, about foreign policy. What, what was the significance on World War II and how did it shape for, uh, public opinion from then on? So, so in, in, uh, this is simplifying a lot of nuances in, in history, but to, to, to provide a relatively short answer, but in the wake of World War II, you get a dramatic shift in both public opinion, but also in the way the foreign policy establishment view things. Where prior to that, it wasn't perfect that you had a beginning and an end to a war, but you had more of that, where you'd have a, a war ramp up, and then there was kind of a decline in the aftermath. Um, you know, in the wake of World War II, there's a dramatic shift where there was a concern not just for uh, uh, immediate threats, but also for future threats as well. There was also the rise of, of a, a faceless enemy or ideology in the name of communism uh, uh, and, and the need to combat that. And so what you see in the wake of, of World War II is, is, is this adoption of a policy that you might describe as total war uh, and the adoption of, of a permanent war economy. The idea that we need a debt, that the US government and America needs a dedicated commitment to not just preparing for a war that might be taking place at a point in time, but preparing for future wars as well. And so you had this dedication to uh, a, a state of ubiquitous and, and total warfare. Uh, and the development of techniques and methods and, and physical capital output to prepare for that. And of course, when you adopt that, it's going to shift the way you do things, the way you carry out policies domestically and internationally. It's going to affect uh, domestic life. It's going to affect economic life because resources need to be forcibly reallocated from providing positive sum uh, 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 private goods and services to uh, military, militarily related goods and services, you're going to uh, get sh shifts in politics uh, and political institutions, but also in social relations as well. 
and how people review their, view their relationship as a citizen to the state and the role that the state plays. And that's, that's never gone away, by the way. Now it's just changed. Uh, and you know, one of the great kind of difficulties you have is when you have an open-ended war, uh, and again, you know, in some sense, we have so many wars that the term has lost all meaning. Everything's a war. I mean, what's not a war? That's the more interesting question, perhaps. Uh, but when they're open-ended, they just go on forever. You can never defeat someone. Uh, you can never end it. Like, what would winning the war on drugs mean? Uh, what would winning the war on terrorism mean? Uh, uh, there's no enemy to defeat. There's no outgroup. There's no clearly defined outgroup you can ever defeat. Uh, and, and so that means that it's always with us. Uh, and, and, but that also means that everything that's bundled up with carrying out that, that, that warfare is with us. Uh, and that's, that's part of the issue. Uh, and so another thing we might think about in terms of potential solutions is, is advocating for the end of, of open-ended wars. Uh, that, that anyone advocating for warfare has clear, defined goals uh, and an incentive to actually follow through on those goals, uh, which means some severe penalty for not uh, 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 you know, ending a conflict when, when those goals are either met or when it becomes evidently clear that they cannot be met. Um, so this, this gentleman in the white shirt had a, his hand raised before, and then I'll go back to the, this side. Hi, uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Chip Parkhurst. I'm a graduate student. Uh, so early in the talk, um, you mentioned kind of a, a more narrow definition of militarization. Um, I'm sorry. A more narrow definition of militarization um, kind of specific to police versus a, kind of a broader characterization of it. If that's a misrepresentation, um, please correct me. But the question is, do you draw a distinction between military methods and kind of more traditional policing um, or is policing fundamentally militaristic? So when we discuss it, we talk very, um, very clearly in the beginning that from the beginning of this country, the, uh, the founders recognized very clearly or they made a very clear distinction between police and military. And historically, I mentioned posse comitatus earlier, but there are certainly other uh, pieces of law which are intended to clearly separate those two functions. Uh, one of the things that we point out in the book, which I think is a really clear uh, way of describing this, is comparing the US soldier's creed to looking at police mottos. So you take something like the LAPD, whose motto is to serve and protect, and then you take the US soldier's creed, which uh, is in part, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, includes provisions about being ready to employ, engage, and destroy enemies of the United States in close combat. Uh, you are looking at very different populations that those two groups are working with. So the job of police is to protect the rights of citizens. This would be both those people who are uh, victimized, but also those people who are committing the crimes. So we compare this, and that's very different, uh, to engaging in a type of combat situation in which the objective is to destroy the enemy. Uh, and so it's not just a distinction that we make, but it's also a distinction that has historically been made. But what we uh, discuss in the book uh, and what we've seen over time is this progressive blurring of those two lines together. Uh, so Radley Balco was mentioned. He certainly discussed this. Uh, Peter Kroska is a criminologist. I believe he's at Eastern Kentucky University. He's done a lot of work in, on this as well, uh, looking at how it is that police have come to look progressively more like military. Your, your question actually is a good opportunity for me to mention one of my favorite stories about 
uh, early at least British policing where the decision in the 19th century to make sure that the police wore blue uniforms uh, was to deliberately distinguish them from the redcoats who were in, in the military, which um, led to a derogatory slur of this early police force being called lobsters, namely that they, they start blue, but once they're in hot water, they quickly turn red and start looking like poli uh, like soldiers. Uh, I want to, there was, did so did you have a hand raise? There's no, and then I'll, I'll, I will get to you, I promise, but let's, I saw his hand first. I see you guys refer a lot to government. Uh, what do you mean by government? I'm wondering whether, uh, because you see that Congress is supposed to uh, imply a constraint on that, you know, what the other branches do that actually is a fraud. They are not doing anything. Courts are, are supposed to uh, you know, provide justice, that's another fraud, that it's just, and also the whole, all of those system is doing this for the private, that 1% or maybe less than those that are benefiting of all of this that you are talking about. And how can you, or how, how do you propose that to prevent this one, you know, that it, it's a, conspiracy be, be, between all of them to imply all these issues that you guys are uh, referring to, rather than, uh, uh, you know, it's just some uh, part of government, police department or army or whatever they are doing it. It's just because of some bad people up there, rather than it's a general well-planned, well-organized, well-developed, uh, you know, the, uh, policy to benefit certain group of the society rather than the whole general of the country. So th there's a lot to that. So let me try to, to, to answer several parts of it as briefly as I can. So your point's well taken. When, what are we talking about with the government? We're talking about, the, we talk about the American government in the book, even though our, our theory is generalizable beyond America. What do I mean when I talk about that? Everything that constitutes the American government, in, our, in the case of our uh, book, The National Security State. And that's a whole variety of institutions. You mentioned Congress and the judiciary. And of course, those things exist, as well as the executive branch. Uh, and of course, those things have some influence and sway over foreign policy. Uh, but there's a significant portion of, of what you might call the national security state that falls outside the purview of those things. Some people refer to it as the deep state. Uh, the legal scholar Michael Glennon refers to it as the efficient set of institutions in, in, in the American government. Uh, and, and, you know, you got to be careful. A lot of times people talk about the deep state and they start, you know, you know, it sounds conspiratorial. But nothing we're talking about requires some kind of massive conspiracy. It's just the way kind of a massive bureaucratic system will, will tend to operate in the various pressures and dynamics. And so the, the issue is, while the executive branch, the congressional branch, the judiciary, all have some say in either designing foreign policy or in checking it, there is a significant portion that they don't control uh, and they can't control. Uh, and the reason they can't control it is part of it's just limits on human beings. That if you think about the complexities of foreign affairs of the national security state, just getting your head around it in terms of just sitting down and getting your head around it would be near impossible to do. And so a congressperson has a whole host of different things that they're responsible for overseeing, they're responsible for, for, for doing for their constituents. Even the most dedicated person who, who spent all their time trying to understand the nuances of this national security state could not do it. On top of that, government oversight committees, 
uh, the executive branch are oftentimes dependent on the very members of the national security state because of the covert nature of the operation to provide them with information. This allows them to provide, uh, 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 manipulate, and, and selectively provide information that they so choose, which can be uh, uh, used in some cases, not all for self-interested purposes. And so if you look at the constraints uh, by the executive, by the congressional branch, by the judiciary, the judiciary, by the way, in times of crisis has been very passive in terms of enforcing and upholding laws against the national security state. Uh, it's not that they never do, but they uh, historically have been. Be, uh, they've been very wary about uh, uh, getting in the way of, 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 of those in the national security apparatus. Those things are relatively weak. Uh, I just want to make clear, and then I'll, I'll, I know there's other people that want to speak, so I don't want to spend too long on this. You know, it, there's no grand plan going on here that like someone sat down at a point in time again and said, let me figure out how to destroy American freedom. Think about this as kind of a, a culmination over time with ebbs and flows of the natural outcome of adopting a militaristic foreign policy which requires a certain mindset about how you treat other human beings. Now combine that with the centralized force, uh, which is what I mean by government, centralized, a centralized monopoly on force with uh, almost unlimited resources uh, and, and massive amounts of power. Most power in the, in the, probably in the history of mankind. Uh, and then the just dynamics of politics, which you all understand in various ways, shapes, and forms. You combine those things together, uh, and, and in some sense, this is very predictable. We should expect expansions in the scope of government power over time. The specific manifestation of that is going to ebb and flow and, and, and vary. Uh, but that's the dynamics at work. Um, so uh, I'm going to go to this gentleman. Please keep your hand raised if you want to have a question. I want to get a sense of how many we have left. OK. Uh, so we have less than 10 minutes to go, so please keep your questions brief. Thank you. Gentleman in the back. Yeah, hi, more of a psychological question or a dimension. Uh, what I'm picking up from this is that there's really a state of hypervigilance. Uh, following World War II, the Cold War, I lived through that, where there was always a sense of being bombed and the sense that you could not let down your guard. The death of the Soviet Union, and all of a sudden we're celebrating that history has ended. 9-11, just to fast forward this. These are traumas and traumas in populations and one of the things, one of the signature PTSD symptoms from Vietnam, Afghanistan, uh, is hypervigilance. So we are in perpetually a state of hypervigilance. People manipulate that too. And so the question is, given the world, given the Chinese threats, et cetera, and I realize some things are amped up, some things are not, environmental problems. How can we ever come out of the state of hypervigilance? Because unless we do, just like people that have PTSD, you get into ritualized behaviors to try to get rid of that terrible anxiety. So I, I'm asking the psychological, I work as a therapist or have worked as a therapist. It's, it's a great question, and I, I should preface this by saying that, that I'm not a, a psychologist. Chris is not a psychologist, so anything that I say related to that is not, uh, not professional in that capacity. Um, mentioned earlier the work of Robert Higgs, and he's also done some work looking at the political economy of fear. Uh, and one of the parts of his framework is this idea that you have some kind of a crisis. So 9-11, uh, uh, the idea of you know, reds under the bed. So whether it's a real threat or a perceived threat, there is this tendency for people when they feel threatened to call upon government to do something to fix the problem. Um, and one of the things that we do point out uh, in the book, I think we've got quotes in there from uh, Douglas MacArthur, among other people, talking very uh, pointedly 
about that as being a mechanism for allowing for continued expansion of government behavior. I think the, the quote from uh, MacArthur says something of like, people are in this perpetual state of fear, uh, afraid of some monster that never quite materializes. Uh, how it is that you keep people out of that, uh, or how you might mitigate that, I think is a tougher question. Uh, one of the things that I, uh, in my small way, have found somewhat effective uh, is when I talk to people about terrorism, I always talk to them about the statistics of how likely are you to actually ever be impacted by this personally. So you are someone that you love. Uh, and it's usually when I tell them something like you're more likely to die from a brain-eating parasite or to be struck by lightning uh, than you are to actually be involved uh, in a terrorist attack. Um, that, I think, is one way to go about doing it. I don't know if that's necessarily effective for everybody, um, but it's uh, maybe a start. Yeah. Uh, I'll take this gentleman's question here. So can you wait for the, the microphone, please? Thank you. I have one good one for you. Uh, Trump just uh, decided that Mexico should uh, take in uh, uh, immigrants as, uh, for asylum and not allow them to come to this country. I'm curious, uh, would you, does your analysis then argue that domestically uh, a person, a, a company who hires an illegal immigrant should suffer a penalty, economic penalty, to do so. Well, we almost made it through without mentioning Trump, but I guess we <laughs> uh, But yeah, so what's, um, what are the implications of this when it comes to uh, asylum seekers and perhaps immigration more broadly? Uh, well, our, our book uh, says nothing explicitly about any of this, uh, nothing about immigration, nothing about uh, this particular instance you raise. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think our, our framework would be largely silent on that, mainly because I, I'm not sure how that type of scenario would align with a, a foreign intervention and then people coming back home after. Um, if you're asking me my opinion, should someone that hires an illegal immigrant be penalized economically? Uh, if you ask me personally, I'd say no, but that's a different Cato form for a different day. Uh, and so I don't know if you have anything. No. Well, that's a well, different we'll have for a different day. Yeah. yeah, we have. Me and my colleagues have worked extensively on illegal immigration, and I'm sure there'll be lunch conversations. Uh, we're in the final few minutes. I know uh, you had a question, did you? Yes. Yeah. So we'll probably have to make this the last one. Hi. Um, first off, my name is Matt. I'm a rising senior at George Mason University, and I'm actually really excited to be taking uh, Professor Coyne's class on defensive peace economics in like five days or something. Uh, but regardless, my question is that... Don't ask a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so recently, both Senator Ted Cruz and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have both uh, come out to support and to supporting some legislation regarding... Uh, a ban on Congress members from uh, becoming lobbyists once they uh, retire their legislative career. Um, my question is, what are your thoughts on, uh, does this have any impact on your type of work, and do you think that there are any sorts of unforeseen consequences of said legislation? Yeah, that, that particular example I don't think would matter too much in terms of our specific framework. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a still a good question, by the way, because it does matter for the alignment of people that are supposed to be representing uh, the, the interests of people and pursuing their own lobbyists. 
Uh, of course, this, the point you make is a broader one about the, what's often called the revolving door, the movement back and forth between various government agencies and private industry. And that happens in a whole host of things, the financial sector, the healthcare sector. But it's one of the defining features of the military sector, of course. And, and going back to something I raised earlier, like a lot of things, if you pay attention, like a lot of problems have, uh, or supposed problems like this, have solutions in place. There are rules, for instance, about former members of the military, at least, working for private firms. And they're supposed to go through a variety of steps, uh, uh, talking to legal counsel uh, and so on in the government before they're able to do it. Uh, these laws have no teeth and aren't enforced. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, I, these kind of things sound nice, but I doubt that they will uh, 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 solve the, the root matter. Uh, and, and the root matter is this in this case. Not the fact that members of Congress become lobbyists, that there is an incentive to lobby in general. And so uh, as long as there is an incentive to lobby, they'll be lobbyists. Uh, uh, and so, you know, if I was thinking about how to address that, it wouldn't be banning certain people from being lobbyists, it would be to look at various policy reforms or, or mechanisms that can be resigned, uh, designed to remove the desire to lobby whatsoever. Uh, and that would make the, the, the fundamental problem a, a non-issue. I, I would add to that as well, just in terms of you asking, are there criticisms of this? And one of the things that people will often bring up when it comes to anything related to politics and recognizing the problems, whether they're the ones we've talked about today or others, people will ask about things like, well, should we limit lobbying or campaign contributions or this you know, revolving door phenomenon that we've talked about? And one of the things that I always come back to is one of the things that, you, that students learn pretty much the first day that they take an economics course is that any time that there is scarcity, there is going to be competition. Uh, and so eliminating one avenue might change the way that people go about engaging in a particular activity, um, but it doesn't eliminate the activity altogether. Uh, and so you change maybe the nature of the competition, but you don't eliminate the competition itself. This reminds me of uh, one of the many pieces of the book that I underlined was uh, on this point that you note that of the 108 three- and four-star generals and admirals who retired between 2009 and 2011, 70% accepted jobs with private defense contractors or consultants after retirement, which is another, I guess, revolving door and probably a topic for another forum. Uh, all that remains is for you to please join me in thanking Abby and Chris for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, cool.